Luke 5, and we're going to begin reading verse 27. If you would stand, we'll read the Bible together. Of course, on uh, Wednesday nights, we try to focus on Jesus, and we've been focusing on the twelve, his apostles, his followers, the close disciples that he had, and tonight we're going to look at Matthew. So look at, begin reading in verse 27. It says, And after these things he went forth, this is Jesus, and saw a publican, that's a tax collector, named Levi, sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. Now I'll explain in just a moment why he's referred to as Levi, but Levi, Matthew, it's the same person. So verse 28, And he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want to speak to you tonight on Matthew from publican to preacher. He went from publican to preacher. And I want to look at this great conversion and change that took place in his life. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the privilege to be in your house, be with your people, to sing your praises, to give glory to your name, to hear from your word, to establish our lives on your truth. And I pray that you'd help us tonight. I thank you for the change that you made in Matthew, the change that you've made in many of us, and we anticipate the great change that you can make in all of us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Appreciate you standing. Many of you would be familiar with this story, but I'd like to tell it again. It's a good story to tell. As a young man, John Newton was pressed into naval life. He eventually worked on a crew that was involved in slave trading. But he didn't get along with the captain. He didn't get along with the the, uh, crew itself. And so on one of their journeys to pick up slaves, they picked up a bunch of slaves on their ship and they just left him with the slave trader. And he became a slave himself. In 1748, uh, his father sent a crew after him and he was rescued. And eventually he became a captain of his own slave ship. It was in the middle of a giant storm, a very violent storm, that Newton cried out for mercy to God and begged for forgiveness. He was not a believer, but it's amazing how sometimes a trial like that can bring you to your knees and He knew of the Lord because of his mother, but uh, he cried out to God and begged for forgiveness, and God spared his life. And it was at that moment his life profoundly changed. He gave up his naval career, he gave up his slave trading, he he eventually became a pastor at the age of 39, and he began working towards abolishing the slave trade in England. You recognize his name if you're familiar with the story because his claim to fame is that he became a great hymn writer and he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Everybody's sung that song in Christendom. Everybody's familiar with it. In his old age, John Newton said upon reflection, and this is a quote, he said, Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was a slave to sin and Satan. I can heartily join with the Apostle and acknowledge that by the grace of God, I am what I am. These are powerful words come from a man who not only was a slave trader, was a slave himself. 
He was a blasphemer, a curser, a foul mouth, foul living individual, but God changed his life. And he penned it in that famous poem, put the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Powerful words that brought probably all of us to, our tears, to tears at some point in our life. Certainly John Newton is an amazing testimony of Jesus' power to change somebody's life. We come back to our text tonight because Matthew is another such example. Matthew is only mentioned in the New Testament eight times. And four of those times are just simply because he is on the list of the apostles or the disciples. The other four times have to do with his conversion. And you understand when I say that word conversion, I just simply mean how he was changed. A lot of times we say, have you been converted? We mean, have you been saved? Have you become a believer? Have you been born again? Those kind of things. But that word conversion just simply means to change. And, and the greatest change that happens in somebody's lives is when they get saved, when they get born again. But God starts changing our lives as well. And I think it's interesting that four times he's just mentioned on a list. The other four times have to do every time with his conversion. In fact, I mentioned to you, and we saw it in our text, three times he's referred not as Matthew, but he's referred to as Levi. Graham Scroggie said this, It is likely that the name Levi was changed to Matthew after his call. Probably Levi was his Jewish name, and Matthew his Christian name. As, after, all, after his call to discipleship, Simon was named Peter, so Levi would, in the same circumstances, be called Matthew. And that made sense because that day when he was sitting at the, the receipt, the uh, table of custom, he, he, he met Jesus. He didn't anticipate that day the Messiah coming by and saying, hey, follow me. And he didn't anticipate his life being changed the way it was, but it was forever changed that day. It's changed in its nature as he was born again. Aren't you thankful for that great verse that Paul wrote? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's what happens when somebody gets born again. Their entire nature changes. And, and when his faith was placed in Christ, his nature changed. But his life changed. His career changed. His, his character changed. Everything changed about him. I came across this quote, and I like it. If you write things down and you keep track of these things, this is a good one to remember. Every saint has a past, and every sinner a future. But you think about your own life. If you are saved, you are a saint. Now, you hear people say that sometimes, well, I ain't no saint, you know, bad grammar for emphasis. And we say things like that, I'm no saint, but if you're saved, you are. The word saint just carries the idea of being sanctified, being, being set apart. And when somebody gets saved, they become a saint. And if you've been saved, every saint here has a past. Uh, some of us, it's different. You got saved later in life, and there's a lot of water under the bridge. There's a lot of baggage that you brought to your salvation. Others that we got saved when we were younger, younger in age. And that doesn't really matter when you get saved. It matters that you are saved. And we've talked about that in this particular series. And so we say that every saint has a past, and every sinner has a future. Aren't you thankful with the Lord Jesus Christ that He gives us hope, He gives us light, He gives us a future, He gives us a brighter day, He gives us the possibility to change Matthew is an example of that. So I want to give you this evening two truths that Matthew's conversion from publican to preacher teaches us. Two truths his life teaches us. I want you to see them tonight. And I hope these truths excite you. I hope they don't bore you. Again, I think sometimes as a pastor you, you think, well, I, I look at my notes and I look at the text and I look what I've drawn out of it and I think, well, they already know this. 
But the truth is, is we need to be reminded so many times of the truths that are contained in God's Word. We, we need to have them reinforced in our life. And so I want you to see truth number one. Sinful men will be received. Sinful men will be received. You know, a good living could be made as a tax collector. Somebody said a good living could be made if you had high financial aspirations and low ethical standards. And that's kind of what these guys were, these tax collectors. They were kind of shady characters. They collected taxes for the Roman government. And you think about, I mean, if, if I say, I, I saw this in the news here recently, and you've seen it in the last several months, that, that uh, the current administration is trying to bulk up the IRS and hiring, I can't remember how many more IRS agents. Did that excite everybody? Yeah, oh, great, that's what we need, more IRS agents around here. I mean, you think about even in our day, I mean, tax collectors don't, don't bring, like, good thoughts to our mind. Well, in that day, it was, it was even worse, right? These, these people, were, were because they were employed for the Roman government that was viewed as a, a system of oppression to the Jewish people, they viewed them as extortioners and they viewed them as traitors. In fact, the Talmud, you understand what that was? That was a collection of like uh, a Jewish custom and tradition. And the Talmud taught that it was acceptable to lie to tax collectors. It was acceptable to deceive a tax collector because that's exactly what a professional extortioner deserved. Could you imagine if you came to like your, your place of worship and they're like, now listen, you should never lie. But if it's a tax collector, you got the green light. <laughs> That's not something you would expect to hear out of the pulpit, right? But this was kind of some of the stuff that they were, they were teaching in their custom and their culture. Well, Matthew was a tax collector, which was to say, basically, if you said he's a publican, it was synonymous as say, saying, you're the scum of the earth. Now, here's what they thought about tax collectors, and, and really, it, it, was, it was an accurate assessment in many ways. They were very dishonest. They overcharged people. They would tell them, this is what your, what your taxes are, and, and, and if they couldn't pay what they were being overcharged, they would offer a high-interest loan. I mean, isn't that nice? Yeah. I, I remember one time I, I got a letter from the IRS. I, I literally did, and it had a check in it that they were refunding me some money. And they said, you know, Mr. Jones, I, I'll, I'll summarize it. It basically said this, we calculated an error, and we owe you some money. Oh, this is great. They said, but if we are wrong, the error will be on you, and you will have to pay interest. What? <laughs> so, so they would charge you more. Uh, these tax collectors would charge you more, and if you couldn't afford it, they would say, hey, listen, I'll, I'll give you a loan, a high-interest loan. And it reminds me of these places like, hey, you need money today? Cash your check early. We'll help you out. You, you know, and they're going to charge you this exorbitant interest rate in order to make money. That's what they were doing. They are basically running a racket. They were running a scheme. And then what they would often do is that they would take bribes from the rich to extort the poor. And, and all you have to do is read your Bible and see what God thinks about those things. Remember when we were just in Habakkuk on, on Sunday morning we saw how God pronounced woe on, on the people of Babylon and, 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 and applied it to the nation of Israel. And one of those things was they, they, they were self-ambitious, meaning they were, they were extorting people for their own personal gain. And God thought that that was a very, very bad thing to do. God does not like those kind of things. But here, that's what they were doing. They were dishonest. They were also disloyal. He was considered a traitor. He had turned his back on his God. He had turned his back on his people. He had turned his back on his nation. If you know anything about the Israelites, they are a people of strong national pride. 
And man, what are you doing working for the Roman government? You are a traitor. They would, if we used it in our vernacular today, they would call them an Uncle Tom. That's exactly what they do. I can't believe that you would do this. They were disloyal is the way they saw them. They were detested. In fact, kids would be encouraged to spit at them by their parents. They were defiled. You see, he was excommunicated from the synagogue. He, he was oftentimes uh, considered dead to his family, and, and they considered them unsalvageable. Basically, they would say this about a publican. They would say this, they are too far gone. And that brings us to our point tonight. I think there are a lot of well-meaning people that look at other people and think they're too far gone. You know, it's one thing to be bad, but it's another thing to be that. And this particular lesson teaches us that nobody's too far gone. Sinful men will be received. Let me give you some Bible examples of what I'm talking about. It's interesting to me that three tax collectors are specifically mentioned in the New Testament. We're looking at one of them, Matthew. There's a second one. Uh, It's a little light crowd tonight, so anybody want to guess the second tax collector in the Bible? Zacchaeus, that's right, he was a wee little man. And we know that he was kind of a, he was like kind of a head honcho tax collector. I mean, this guy was like uber wealthy. He must have been ripping off a lot of people. I bet he was kind of in a pyramid scheme. He had people working under him and making money off of them. The other one I'll try and, I'll try and help you out. It wasn't just Zacchaeus. You got Matthew and you got Zacchaeus. But Jesus told a parable. You remember there was a, a Pharisee and he was praying and there was a publican and he was praying and the publican couldn't even really come into the courtyard and he was down on his knees. And many people believe that Jesus told that story, a parable, but he was basing it off of something he had really seen with his own eyes and observed and he was retelling the account and the story. And the publican is over there and he won't even raise his eyes to heaven and, and, and the Pharisee's over here praying and he says, I thank thee that I am not as this man. And, uh, but, but, but Jesus said forgiveness was found not in the Pharisee, forgiveness was found in that publican. So it's interesting to me that three publicans are mentioned in the New Testament and all three of them found forgiveness from the Lord Jesus Christ. What that teaches us is this, and Jesus emphasizes it in the text, We are all lost sinners in need of a Savior. And that's exactly why Jesus came. That's what he says again. We'll read it because there's just wonderful verses. I've highlighted them in yellow in my Bible, and I would encourage you to mark them up the same in yours. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know what Jesus is saying in those verses there? If you're taking notes, just get this message. No one is too bad to get saved. That's what he's saying. No one is too bad to get saved. Listen, I've taken the Bible and I've tried to lead some people to Christ and I've had people say to me, oh, preacher, you, uh, sir, you don't know what I've done. You, you don't know what I've been a part of. Oh, God couldn't save me. My friend, I don't care how, who you are and what you've done. God can reach to the lowest of lows. Sinful men will be received. In fact, what Jesus is telling us in this text, he says no one's too bad to be saved. But here's what he adds. There's some people too good to be saved. You say, what do you mean by that? He said, there are some people that think they're so good that they'll never come to the Savior and they'll never be saved. Until we all realize how bad we are, we never will be saved. And he reminds us that. Hey, there's nobody I can't save. There's some that are so stubborn they won't get saved. There's some that think they don't need to be saved. But we're all sinners in need of a Savior and sinful men he will receive. You see, Jesus, again, is the great physician and there are three kinds of patients 
that Jesus cannot heal. First of all, He cannot heal those that do not know about Him. That's why we believe in in going out into our community. That's why we believe in SOS Saturday. That's why we believe in in being a witness. That's why we believe in what we did with Operation Neighbor, trying to get booklets into into our neighbor's hands that contained the gospel. Why? Because there are some people that don't know. Yes, right here in South Carolina, buckle of the Bible Belt, there's still some people that don't know. Hey, listen, I'm telling you right now, I am am sometimes blown away by some of the students in our Christian school that don't know very much Bible. What do you think about some of the kids that we bring in for Kids Crusade and coming to Sunday school and have no concept whatsoever of the Scriptures? I'm just simply telling you, don't, don't kid yourself and think that there aren't people that live right here in our community that are ignorant of what it means to be saved and who Jesus is. That's why we also believe in missions. Why? Because there are people all around this world that they need to hear. And if they do not hear of the Savior, they will not be saved. Here's another category. Those who know about Him but refuse to trust Him. I guarantee I'm talking to people, and I know I've got them in my life and in my family that know the gospel, but they refuse to believe it. I may be preaching to somebody right now. You're sitting here going, oh, this all religious stuff, and man, this Bible stuff, and blah, blah, blah. And, And you know about it, but you refuse to believe it. Listen, if that's your case, it's not that he can't save you. It's that he won't save you because you won't allow it. Number three, there are those who who will not admit they need him. But I'm telling you this right now. You can categorize it all you want, but it's never because you're too sick to be healed. That's never the problem. John 6, 37 says this, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I know sometimes people, hey, we, we sing old hymns around here. We sing new songs and stuff too, but we sing old hymns around here, and I like those old hymns. There's a reason they've lasted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, because they have timeless truths to them. Now, I don't know about you and what your church background is, and I don't know if you grew up singing this one, but, but I grew up singing this one, and I, I don't know if we sing it around here very much, Brother Mark, but it goes like this. Sinners, Jesus will receive. Sound this word of grace to all. Who the heavenly pathway leave, all who linger, all who fall. Come, and He will give you rest. Trust Him, for His word is plain. He will take the sinfulest. Christ receiveth sinful men. Sing it o'er and over again. Christ receiveth sinful men. Make the message clear and plain. Christ receiveth sinful men listen i just want to make that pronouncement here tonight sinful men will be received i've never seen the lord jesus cast somebody out no friend don't get to the place where you think in your life somebody's too far gone that god can't reach that one that god won't reach that one i'm telling you sinful men he will receive we don't understand it the way we ought to in the context of their culture this man matthew was the last guy that they thought They wanted to see saved, and that could and would be saved. Let's get to the second point. Sinful men will be received, but let's point this out. Sinful men can be, or will be, reformed. Sinful men will be reformed. Now that word reformed means having been changed in such a way as to be improved. Changed in such a way as to be improved. See, when a person is converted to Christ... Remarkable changes take place in that person's life. 
I think that's what the 2 Corinthians 5.17 is all about. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. What that's signifying is if you study the context of that verse, is, is it doesn't necessarily mean that immediate change of, of every variety is going to take place as soon as somebody gets saved. Listen, I've seen that happen. I've seen some people get saved and they dump all their liquor down the drain. They get rid of their cigarettes. They get rid of this sinful lifestyle and they never touch it again. I've seen that. But you know, most people struggle and still battle through that stuff in their life. And everybody wants to say, well, if you, didn't, if, that, if you didn't change all that stuff when you got saved, then you didn't get saved. Listen, don't make that, don't, don't make that connection. That's not what the context says. The context in that, in that passage says that you're changed on the inside. You become an ambassador. You were an enemy. Now you're a friend. It, it, it gives the outline of exactly what changed. Your nature is now changed, which gives you the possibility to change. But I do want you to see this that Matthew gave some serious evidence that his nature had been changed. We'll see it in our text. Look at verse 28. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. I, start, I marked that, left all, rose up, followed him. I love that. It gives us those couplets of words right there. But notice what, what it's teaching this. It, it, it's showing evidence that his conversion, his change was legit. I love how it says there, he left all. Meaning this, here's what he did. When it says he left all, it means he separated from his wickedness. <laughs> Look, guys, you, you can't change if you don't turn your back on the things that are sucking you in, uh, down and pulling you down. He said, no, 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 no. I, I'm going to leave that, and I'm, I'm going to change that. I'm going to get away from that. See, sometimes what that means is I've got to get away from certain friends. I've got to get away from certain places. I've got to get away from certain stuff. And he made that change in his life. Notice what else he did. He arose. He elevated his living. I love that. I, I think li literally, I believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture, literally it means he was sitting down at a table and he got up. That, that's, that's literally what it's saying. But I think symbolically you could say he, he was on a low plane in his living and he decided to do what our theme is this year. He said, I, I want to get to some higher ground. I'm tired of low living. I'm tired of being down here. I want to be up here. And, and so, so he, he started going. You, you know, listen, you, you can't, I understand sometimes we might be down here and we think, man, I want to be up there. But you can't, you can't just stay down here and want to be up there. You at least got to take one step at a time. And that's what he did. He started to arise. And I bet it took him a while to get there. But, but at, least he was, at least he was moving in the right direction. So, so he left it. He arose. And then I love this. This is, I think, the most important one. He followed him. What, he said, what that's saying there is he decided to submit to God's way. And you understand that's when you'll see the biggest and greatest change in your life. When you decide to submit to God's way. You, you can't say, well, you know what, I want God to change my life, but I, but I kind of like my life the way it is. That doesn't make sense. You know, I want God to change my life, but I want to keep doing everything that I'm doing. No, you have to submit to what God wants you to do. And, and if, if Jesus said, hey, hey, follow me, then that's what he did. If Jesus said, hey, stay right there, then that's what he did. He followed him. He submitted to him. He, he went there. And, and notice here, I, I love this idea too, evidencing the change in his life. Verse 29 says he, he had this feast, and it says, I think this is on purpose, in his own house. Can I say this to you tonight? If your salvation isn't seen in your own house, then you have to qu question the validity of it. 
Meaning, the people that are with you day in and day out and see you, they, they see you when you're stressed, they see you when you're tired, they see you when you're sick, they see you when you're vulnerable, they, they see you when you're excited, they see you who you are. And friend, if, if your faith is not seen there, then I would say it's probably a counterfeit. And here he has Jesus in his home, he has it in his own house, and, and he's showing it, and, and, he, and he brings all these other people in. He starts bringing these other, man, you, you need Jesus. You need to meet who I've met. And he, and he brings all these other publicans and sinners in. There's the only people that he knew. And, and, and I love that idea because he was saying here, he wasn't a secret disciple. I've said this to you before, guys. You, you shouldn't be working in an office or a factory, and then three years after you've been working there, somebody goes, I didn't know you went to church. I didn't know you were a Christian. And that should never happen. And here they knew right away. All these sinners and publicans and liars and cheaters and, and, and down and out. They, they immediately, he said, hey, 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 I'm following this guy. And I want you to come eat dinner with him. I want you to meet him. Now, I want to be very careful on verses 31 and 32. Because I think far too many ministries and preachers and Christians have used the, these verses to, to seemingly indicate that Jesus was sanctioning worldliness or Jesus was, was not an advocate for, for personal uh, separation from sin. That, that's not what these verses are teaching. I think there needs to be a proper balance. Life is a balancing act. You all with me tonight on that? Right? Jesus was a balance of grace and truth. He was a balance of love and justice and all of those kind of things. Perfect balance. And I think the more that you mature in your faith, the more balance you will have in your Christian life. And see, in this particular aspect, I think there are some people who are so holy that they will have no contact whatsoever with lost people. Clearly, that is an imbalance. Like, like if you don't know anybody and have no contact with anybody whatsoever that isn't a sanctified Christian, then, then you're really not fulfilling God's purpose and plan for why we're here in this world. Okay, so, so we don't want to take, take that kind of aspect, but at the same time, some are so worldly that they, see, that they use Jesus as an excuse to be carnal. It's like they take this verse and be like, see, Jesus was eating with, Jesus was eating with, with sinners, I mean, that's why I hang out at the bar. No, you hang out at the bar because you're sinful and you're using Jesus to justify your sin. And, and that's, listen, use something else to justify your sin besides Jesus. What this teaches about our Lord is he came into contact with all kinds of people, but here's what he always did. Please don't miss this. He came into contact with all kinds of people. So lest you think he was just hanging out with the publicans and the sinners and the prostitutes. And the, he wasn't just doing that. He was hanging out with the Pharisees too. He, 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 was, he was around all kinds of people. Why? Because he came to call them all. Here, here's the thing. He was around all kinds of people, but he always called every one of them to repentance. You, you understand what repentance is, right? I mean, I know that's a fancy Bible word, and people don't like to hear it. I mean, Bible thumpers, repent! 
I mean, maybe you're thinking of that crazy guy around town with the megaphone, you know, on the street corner with a sign, repent, you'll burn in hell. You know, like, like that's kind of what we associate that with, but that is a good Bible word. It's not a bad word. Jesus used that word, didn't he? Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is hand. John the Baptist, the forerunner that was trying to make the way plain for him, what was he saying? Repent. What, what, what does that word mean? It simply means this, a change of mind that leads to a change of action. So if Jesus was alive today, he'd go over to these guys right here. They're Pharisees, the holy of holies, phylacteries on their head, long flowing robes, always keeping the law. And he would hang out with them. But here's what he'd say, you need to repent. Then he'd go over to these guys, hanging out in the bars, drunkenness. Their, their appetites are their gods. You know what he'd say to them? Repent. You need to change the way you think and I'm going to change the way you live. You go over to these guys, tax collectors, thieves. I mean, just stealing from people. Disloyal to their own people. And he would say, hey guys, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told those guys and these guys. I love you, I care about you, repent. Why? Because he never wanted to leave somebody. He never wanted to leave somebody the way he found them. God is always interested in changing us. I'll tell you a story. Stephen Olford told of a man, we'll call him D.C., and you'll find out why he went by D.C. In the late 1800s, he was, a, he was a delinquent teenager in Scotland. He was a thief. He was caught stealing livestock, and he even set the barn and the farm house on fire from whom he was stealing from. He, he would get arrested, he would get caught, but it wouldn't stop him. And so, uh, the, the villagers took drastic measures. It's kind of interesting. I mean, we were in South Africa earlier this, uh, or last year in the summer, and they were telling us in some of those townships that if they find a, a thief among them, they, they, the police don't really go down in these townships, and so they'll warn them once. They catch them stealing again, they'll just take care of it. I said, what do you mean, take care of it? Well, sometimes they beat them up real bad. Sometimes they kill them, but they don't put up with it. They take care of it themselves. So this man wouldn't change. And by the way, I just kind of wonder if that would change. I'm not saying I'm advocating that, but I see all these videos, <laughs> these people going into department stores and stealing all these kind of clothes. Oh, man, if the citizens of that community just... Well, anyway, I'm... <laughs> well, that's what happened here in the 1800s in uh, Scotland. This guy was stealing. He was arrested, and it didn't stop him. So what they did is they caught him, and they tied him down, and they took a branding iron, and they branded on his face, D.C., right here. Just branded it right on his face. You know that hurt. You said, what was D.C. for? Everybody in Scotland knew that that would stand for this, dangerous criminal. Everywhere he went, immediately they would see that branded on his face. I mean, you, you would notice that. And everybody in Scotland knew that meant dangerous criminal. Eventually, he didn't change his ways after that. He stole enough money to buy passage to America. He ends up in Chicago. This is a true story. He ends up in Chicago, and he hears the preaching of the famous evangelist, D.L. Moody. He gets saved. His life drastically changes. 
he gets honest employment uh, to be a, a shoe repairman. He never marries. He's working honestly as a shoe repairman. And he, and he gets a little ministry, and his ministry is to teach teenage boys the Bible. That's what he does. He invests his life in teenage boys, and he makes an impact on their life. Everyone knew he had a rough past, and they would often ask him, they would say, what's, what's, what's the D.C.? And, and he would just kind of blow it off. He would just say, well, you know, I just kind of have a shady past, but, but, but Jesus changed my life. And he would, he would witness to them and, and, and try and invest in their life, but he, he would never tell them their story. And so when he died, when he died, there were hundreds of people that came to his funeral, hundreds. Most of them were boys that were in his little Sunday school class, his little church ministry, and, and uh, they were just touched by how this man had impacted their life. The pastor that was officiating his funeral got up and said this. He said, you know, after knowing D.C. for all of these years, I finally know what D.C. stands for. He truly was a disciple of Christ. You know, I think that's an awesome story because it shows the testimony and the power of God to change somebody's life. And this world is filled with them. Well, I know this one guy, he made a profession, he didn't change his life. Okay, you can be a cynic if you want, but I know dozens and dozens and dozens of people who Christ dramatically changed their life. And I just want to continue to proclaim what Jesus taught then and what Jesus is still teaching now. Sinful men, he will receive. And sinful men, he will reform. What we need to do is leave all, rise up and follow him and just watch the changes start happening in our life. I pray that the Lord will help us all tonight. Let me ask you a few questions and we'll get out of here. Question number one is this, have you come to Christ as your Savior? Have you come to Christ as your Savior? I'd imagine I look around the room, I think predominantly everybody on a Wednesday night, Bible study, prayer meeting type night, you'd say, yeah, yeah, I've been saved. Maybe there's somebody here that you haven't. Can I tell you if you're sitting there thinking, nah, I'm too bad, God couldn't save me. Can I tell you something? I mean this in a polite way, you're wrong. You're not too bad to be saved. God can and God will save you. He wants to save you. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let me ask a question to those of us that know the Lord. Do you ever limit who you think He will save? Do you ever have a tendency to be a little cynical? Eh, I don't think He'll save them. Do you? Because we shouldn't have that mentality. Do you, do, you, do, you ever, do you ever find yourself limiting who you think God will save? Because I, I look in the Bible, there are people like Matthew, I think the Apostle Paul, these are the last people that anybody would think would get saved. And those are the very people Jesus did save. Let's be careful as believers, we don't limit him. Why? Because sinful men will be received. And let, let's let that translate into the way that we welcome anybody that comes in here. I don't ever want this place to be a place where we sit there and we look at somebody and go, what are they doing here? Always welcome here. Why? Because that's, 
listen, God doesn't approve of everything or everyone, but he does welcome everyone. All right, here's another question. How has God changed your life? Now listen, listen, I've said this to you before, but I'm going to say it again. I got saved when I was six years old. I was one month removed from being seven. So it's not like I had a rap sheet. I didn't have three felonies and spent time in a slammer. I got saved when I was six. How did God change your life? He gave me a new nature. He gave me a new nature. And I can tell you this, that after all these years, I've been saved close to 40 years now. That's hard for me to fathom. But in 40 years, God's changed me. There might be changes you might not be able to notice a whole lot, but I know God's changed me. It's kind of like my gray head. It happened one hair at a time. Today was old person's day at our school. Everybody's supposed to dress like an old person. Do you know how many smart mouth second graders said, hey, nice costume? <laughs> These gray hairs, they changed one at a time. And do you know God changes us one service at a time, one moment at a time? One, one issue at a time. He just, he just kind of works here and works there and works there. We love the radical transformation, and that happens sometimes. But most of the time, it's just... So I'm asking you, how has God changed your life? I think this is an even better question. Not how has God changed your life. How is God changing your life? Because I don't want to be these people, well, you know, I used to do this and God changed me. But, but how is he changing me right now? Like, what is God speaking to you about? What is God working in your life about? Because he's continually calling us to repentance. He's continually reforming and changing us. Here's a great question, too, for those of you that really care to grow in your spiritual life. How do you need God to change you? See, most of us resist change because we kind of like it the way it is. But if we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit in our life, and if we truly are adopting the theme that we have, that we want to get to higher ground, then we ought to be saying, hey, God, what are some areas I need to change? Or we, might, we need to be, be recognizing the areas we do need to change and asking Him to help us in that. So in your quiet time today, did you confess your sins? Did you, did you say anything to God? God, I'm really struggling with this. I, I, I need you to change me. I got this desire, and it, it's not a holy desire. Change that. God, I'm not disciplined in this area, and I need to do better than that. Change me in that. Help me. I wonder what your prayer is tonight, what you would say, God, I, I really like to see you change me here. Because I want to remind you, he will receive sinful men, and he will reform sinful men. 